Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hey, everyone. Before the stories begin, I just want to thank Let's Read for joining me on this one. As you all know, he's a fantastic narrator, so big shout out to him, and definitely check him out on his channel as well. I know that this video and the last one was much shorter than my typical video, but I hope you still enjoy it nonetheless. I'll have some longer videos out later this week. Be sure to send in your story at southerncannibal.com if you'd like to have it read here on the channel. All that being said, let's begin. So, to give some background, I went to a college in upstate New York, and this happened during my third year. I'll explain what happened and then the really creepy connection that I have to this event. So, basically one weekend I'm eating breakfast with my apartment mate, and I come across a news article being circulated by students about a murder that was somehow connected to our school. The news article said that a mother was apparently killed in her city apartment. She was stabbed multiple times and had her throat slashed by her son, who went to my school. Well, after killing her, the son stuffed her into a bag. All of this occurred during a fight about her deceased husband's will. After killing his mother, he'll then call his girlfriend to help him move the body somewhere else, who also went to my school. They eventually ended up dumping the body in a garbage can somewhere in New Jersey. So now on to the creepy connection. So I basically knew the son in a really friendly way, as he served and worked at the cafeteria on campus, and so I would always see him and strike up friendly conversations whenever I saw him. He always seemed really nice and friendly. I know it's not that close of a connection, but it still goes to show you that you can never really tell people's true colors. The other super creepy part of the story was that his girlfriend was at my apartment literally two nights ago before the murder happened, because apparently her and my apartment mate were in the same major, so a bunch of people were over to play cards and hang out. I remember that I sat right next to her while we played cards and talked to her, and that she was also super nice. It's crazy to think that in the next 48 hours, her whole life would change and she would help move her boyfriend's dead mother's body that he stabbed and slashed the throat of. It's absolutely insane. This happened in the mid-1970s. I was taking a walk with my now wife through this really nice forest in Colorado. For the most part, we were having a really fantastic time, taking in just how beautiful nature could be, but it was very soon that we would learn how another human being could take that beauty away in the snap of a finger. We were deep in the forest at this point, but at the same time not too far from the way out. We could probably be out in about 15 minutes if we ran. We both eventually noticed this really bad odor. It was like rotting skin. As we continued walking, the smell only got worse. We eventually got to an area with a lot of rocks, tall grass, and many trees. While we were in this area, I had stepped on something soft and heavy. When I did, the smell was so unbearable that I actually gagged and puked. My wife could also smell it, but since she wasn't as close as me, she didn't have the same reaction as I did. 
and after she saw it, I don't think she wanted to come any closer. I knelt down to see what was causing the smell, and I wish I didn't to this day. When I knelt down, I saw this bloody mutilated corpse of a woman whose face couldn't even be recognized. While I was still in this state of shock, I then heard a twig snap from beyond the trees. I yelled to my wife to run, and she did with me following and constantly glancing behind me to see if the possible killer was following us. We made it out of the forest in about 15 minutes, stopped to breathe, then walked home. I didn't call the police because I knew that the body and the person hiding were probably gone at this point. My wife and I were both horrified in our bones for months before we finally forgot about it. I finally had peace of mind, at least until 1979 when I turned on the TV and then started watching an interview with the serial killer Ted Bundy. During the interview, he was asked when he felt the closest to being caught, and he told the interviewer how a few years ago, he had lured a young woman into the forest in the same city the forest I was in. He lured her into the forest, then stabbed her with a knife, then mutilated her body with some really sharp objects that he brought with him. He then heard two people coming, so he jumped behind a tree and watched as the guy knelt down to see the girl's body. He then tried to sneak away, but then stepped on a twig. He said that he was sure the guy would start walking toward him, but instead, he ran away with his wife or girlfriend. It was a really horrible reminder of what happened all those years ago, and the fact that I ran into one of the world's most notorious killers on what was supposed to be a peaceful and fun walk with my wife still really haunts me. I have submitted this story under a pen name to protect my identity. During the late 90s, I was at a very low point in my life. I was a drug addict wandering the streets of downtown Los Angeles, eating out of trash cans, sleeping under bridges, and asking random bypassers for spare change. Looking back, I have nothing but regret for that time in my life, but this story is about the incident that made me sober up and turn my life around. One night, I was sleeping under a secluded highway overpass. It was fairly isolated because of its location on the outskirts of the city and saw little to no police presence. My sleeping spot overlooked a concrete foundation that had stretched on for about 50 yards. It was a pretty long walk to get back to the city from this area, but it was a price I was willing to pay to have this place all to myself. I had more than my fair share of close calls sleeping on Skid Row. So, after a long day of panhandling, I slipped into my sleeping bag and began to doze off. I was suddenly woken up by the sounds of screaming. I turned on my side to see a car parked under the overpass. There were no lights on, but the vehicle's windows were down, and I could tell that there was a commotion taking place inside the cab. Now, I know what you might be thinking. At first, I thought the same thing too. Maybe someone was getting lucky, but these were not screams of pleasure. They were screams of agony. A chain-link fence bordered the concrete platform under the overpass, and at night, a white light next to the fence would turn on and partially illuminated the area. It wasn't the best lighting, but you could still see the area from my sleeping spot. I watched in horror as the passenger side door of the car then flung open, and a skimpily dressed woman exited the car. She was holding her leg and was trying her best to limp away from the car. I was frozen in place almost not believing what I was witnessing. The girl was begging for her life as she awkwardly staggered away from the vehicle. The driver's side door then opened and a figure emerged from the car. I couldn't quite make out the details of this person because the passenger side of the car was facing me, 
The person that emerged from the car then pointed a gun at the girl, then shot her. I remember closing my eyes as soon as the gun went off, and then opening them to see the woman sprawled out on the ground. She was on her back, and the way her head was positioned was as if she was looking at me. Her jaw was going up and down like she was trying to say something. The memory of seeing her like that, well, it still really haunts me. The shooter made his way over to her. When he stepped into the light, I could see that he was wearing a dark hooded jacket with a bandana hiding his face. He stood over her and just watched her for several seconds before then finishing her off with the second shot. I was absolutely petrified at what I had just witnessed. I was now sitting up in my sleeping bag with one hand over my mouth, just trying my best to not make a sound. But what happened next was a whole new level of fucked up. The headlights of another vehicle at the opposite end of the overpass flicked on and drove up to the gruesome scene. At first I was relieved and I stupidly thought that these people were there to help, not even factoring in that a bystander wouldn't just casually drive up to the scene of a crime with a killer still there with a loaded gun. I guess after I witnessed something so horrible, the logical part of my brain wasn't working too well. But things became clear to me once I noticed that the other vehicle was a black van. And things became even more clear once I saw three men wearing ski masks exiting the van with one of them holding a video camera. These sick fucks were filming this entire thing. There was an exchange of words, and the other two men that exited the van walked over to the dead woman and grabbed her arms and legs, then proceeded to carry her body back to the car. The shooter had made his way over to the car before they got there, and the cameraman stepped off to the side and filmed the entire thing. The shooter popped open the trunk, and the men heaved the corpse into it. Without going into too much detail, I'll add that the men didn't seem to be concerned at all about the blood. The cameraman then joined them at the car for a nice close-up shot. The shooter then walked over to the van, then returned with two gas cans. The men doused the car in gasoline, and the shooter struck a match and threw it, and the car was instantly engulfed in flames. The foreman and myself watched as the car burned. As I stared into the fire, I became numb. I had apparently reached my scare limit, and now was just angry. Angry at these animals for what they had done. Even if the woman was an addict or a hooker, no one deserves to die like that, murdered under an overpass in cold blood. The fact that there were others there filming the whole thing pissed me off even more. I considered this to be the exact moment that I stopped being a drug addict. The four men eventually piled back into the van, then left. A short while later, I had emerged from the overpass and made my way to the nearest payphone to call the police. I don't think the police took me seriously at first, until I led them to the burning car. I was questioned for hours by detectives, and yes, they did suspect me, a homeless junkie of foul play, but I stuck to my story. They did keep me in a holding cell for a few days, which they probably couldn't legally do, but I honestly didn't really mind at all. Free showers and food. I was actually a bit bummed out when they eventually released me. I later found out that there were similar killings in San Francisco and Sacramento, and that the perpetrators were wanted by the FBI. I don't know for sure if they ever caught them. I only hope that they did. After that night, I decided that I had enough of living on the streets. The fear I experienced inspired me to get my shit together, finish college, and become an English teacher. I'm proud to say that I've been sober for over 23 years. Sometimes seeing the ugliest side of humanity. Well, I think that's the cure.
Hey everyone, sorry for the interruption from the stories, but I want to take a quick second to thank today's sponsor, HelloFresh, for sponsoring today's episode. HelloFresh eliminates stressful meal planning and trips to the grocery store so that you can enjoy cooking and get food on your table in about 30 minutes or less. HelloFresh has a massive variety of easy delicious choices for all three meals a day, plus every snack and special treat in between. I personally enjoy HelloFresh because it's so convenient on days that I don't feel like cooking, like after a workout at the gym. It's really great for situations just like that. Go to HelloFresh.com Dinner12 and use code Dinner12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. Once again, that's HelloFresh.com Dinner12 and use code Dinner12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. Grab yourself some HelloFresh today. America's number one meal kit. Now if you're all ready, let's get back to the stories. I grew up on Vermont Avenue in South Central Los Angeles, which for those of you that don't know, is the territory of the eight Trey Gangster Crips. And like many young black men at the time, I fell into the corner boy life because there was just nothing else out there for me. This meant I got to know some of the most violent and sadistic people, not just in L.A. County, but maybe even the entire country. Look at it this way. I was 17 in 1992, right on the cusp of being a man when the L.A. riots went down. Do you remember that truck driver, Reginald Denny? The dude who rolled through South Central in his truck, only to get dragged out and beat while the whole thing was being filmed by a circling chopper? Well, two of his attackers were actually big homies from the set I was with, guys who used all that anger and unrest to turn the area around 83rd Street into their own little lawless kingdom. Now, I know it's a big cliche when people say that being gangster only ends up two ways, prison or the morgue, but it's really true. No one ever truly gets out alive, and if you try, Lord above, some people won't make it easy on you because after I caught a charge for slinging dope and decided to use my time in prison to change my life for the better, and I got a lot of pushback. My homies said that they were going to shank me or that I'd have to buy my way out of the set if I wasn't gone so bad. I won't lie, man. That stuff had me stressing, and to cope with it, I ended up falling back into something I hadn't done since I was incredibly young. I got back into the sweet science of boxing. All that training, all that work. I could throw hands better than any homie in there and by the time I got to be the champion middleweight of the whole prison, what do you know? My old running dogs weren't so quick to beef. It never really occurred to me how boxing might be the solution to my problems, but now I feel it's exactly the same way for a lot of young black men all over this country. The discipline, the respect, the self-control, those are qualities that are sorely lacking in our communities. Those ideas planted a seed in me that wouldn't stir until a few years later, but for the time being, boxing kept me out of trouble and helped me turn my life around. After nine years, when I got out, my parole officer managed to land me a job working for a landscaping firm. But after a few days of my back hollering at me, I left that behind. That's when I hooked up with another of the homies from back in the day. He got himself out of the game when his baby mama got shot and never caught no bids, so he had a clean enough record to get himself a security guard job. 
I didn't think that kind of work would even be an option for me, but the homie said he could put in a good word for me. Then what do you know? I end up getting a call from a guy who's willing to give an ex-con like me a chance. He seemed a little sketchy at first, and I can't blame him, but I must have given him all the right answers because, all of a sudden, he's offering me a probationary period to prove I can do the work. I was so happy that I started dancing after I hung up the phone. But the thing was, security guard work would be a hundred times easier than landscaping, and the pay was almost double what I was getting for mowing lawns. But like everything else in life, putting on that security guard's uniform and strapping on a belt brought its own set of problems, some I expected and some not so much. I started off slow at first, morning shifts at this little Korean convenience store to keep the fiends from emptying the place out before 9am. But after a while, as the head of the firm saw that I could do the job and do it well, I started picking up more shifts here and there, guarding different stores at different times of the day. And there was one particular place that so happened to be a regular stop for some west side slobs. I wouldn't normally resort to using gang talk like that. Slobs is a disrespectful term for bloods. Like I said, I'm out of the game, but these boys, and that's exactly what they were, boys, not men, were just about the most low-down people I'd ever come across, even when I was about that life. They were killers, straight up kind of people that would take a life, then take a nap right after. Now, me and my homie from back in the day, we knew this, and we knew not to start anything. A wise man knows to pick his battles, and a battle with a cold-blooded killer over a stolen soda just ain't worth losing your life over. But try telling that to Tyrone, who had an ego bigger than his gut and a brain smaller than what was in between his legs. Tyrone was a jerk, but he wasn't a bad person. He was righteous most deaf, but he had the mouth to match, and it's a long life out here for a man of few words in my mind. See, those Pyru boys used to make a game out of punking security guards and it went like this. One of them would ask for a bottle of Henny or a 40, which the nice Korean lady then had to fish out of a fridge or off a shelf. Then, while her back was turned, they'd help themselves to whatever. Not even because they needed it, just because that's how they do, you know? Only they wouldn't just steal right quick and leave. They'd be eyeballing the security guard the whole time, as to say, what you gonna do, Renacop? When I talked to the store owner, they knew well what was going on, and a little leak wasn't nothing if those boys paid for the alcohol and didn't try to finesse with no fake bills. I explained that they were bad men, very bad, and they might hurt someone if I tried to stop them. But again, the store owner knew. He might have not been from around here and in his late 70s, but the guy wasn't no mark, and he didn't hold it against me or tell the boss, so long as I did my job the rest of the time. See, we had a kind of agreement, an unspoken one, but an agreement all the same. Only Tyrone didn't quite see it that way. Tyrone took it personal. So one night I get a call from the boss man asking if I can work the Korean store on short notice. I tell him, sure, I can work, but... I also asked him what happened to the other guy, be it Pookie, my old homie, or Tyrone. He says Tyrone didn't show up to work for whatever reason, but I don't really pay it no mind, not until I get out of there and bump into those slobs I mentioned. They walk in, clowning on me, doing their usual thing, only on the way out, one of them stops like, You spoke to your boy today, Renacop? I don't say nothing, 
I just give them the look of step off, you know. And they start laughing like, nah, he ain't seen his boy. Ain't nobody seen his boy. I just fronted like whatever, but inside I'm like, who are they talking about? My boy? They mean Pookie? Then boom, it hits me. They're not talking about Pook. They're talking about Tyrone. And how did they know about him not showing up to work? I wait until the slobs leave and tell the nice lady behind the counter that I'm going on break and then head out to the payphones outside to give the boss man a call. It was kind of late at that point, and he wasn't shy about angrily letting me know that I just interrupted some conjugal time between him and his old lady. But once I let him know about what the slob said, he gets real serious and says he'll call the Korean store back once he spoke to Tyrone. An hour goes by and nothing. This is a phone call that should have taken like five minutes tops and here I am worrying for over an hour before I finally get a call back. He called up Tyrone's house only for his mama to answer and all she does is wail about how Tyrone ain't come home that morning and how she's scared to death because people dying in these streets every day and she wasn't wrong about that. Bossman says she was too upset to call the cops so he did it for her. But between you and me, Bad things happen to people who call the cops out here, even if it's just because they're scared for their family. This thing's been long enough already, so I'll cut to the chase. Tyrone didn't come home that morning, and about the same time his mama was worrying about him, two LAPD murder police found a body down the river. It was so torn up that it took him 24 hours to find a relative, and the door they ended up knocking on was Tyrone's mother's door. I heard you could hear the wailing from two blocks away when they told her and she ain't never been right since. But heard it wasn't so much her son's death that broke her. It was having to go identify the body that took her spirit away. And from what I heard, it was all over some cherry lollipop. Tyrone stepped to one of the slobs after they palmed a cherry sucker and the man could only take so much humiliation. He started cussing, even laying hands on him, pushing them out the store. They don't do anything right there. They just laugh while the slob who's getting pushed starts talking a good game about how Tyrone's a dead man, blah blah blah. They was laughing because they knew what was going to happen later. How big brave Tyrone was going to cry for his mom before they capped him. And from what I heard, they took their time over it too. Did all kinds of messed up stuff to him when they just didn't need to. So that when it came to Tyrone's mama going to confirm the body... I think she just lost her mind there and then. I never saw the body and as much as some of the fiends swear they saw him with their own eyes, I don't believe a word. So there's no one, no one I know or would be cool with asking who knows exactly what they did to him. But that doesn't stop me from wondering, wondering what they could have done to him to make his mama just lose herself like that. I even heard she wears nothing but black nowadays. Just sits in an armchair staring at pictures of him. So broke that people gotta feed her and bathe her and stuff. It's sad, man, I know. And what they did to Tyrone and, like, not really knowing. That's what really scares me. <laughs>